from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week uh, by a startup founder uh, out of the city of Austin. He's made the trip down here uh, through our our winter wonderland. Uh, It's a good thing we scheduled this uh, a little bit later into the year and not during our snowstorm casing. So uh, thank you for uh, coming down to San Antonio to join us today. Thank you for the invite, Brett. Appreciate it. So you're uh, doing some research up at the University of Texas and found your way into privacy and security. So uh, explain a little bit of your background to the audience and uh, what we're going to talk about today. Definitely. I... I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Texas at Austin. I did my undergraduate there, and while I was doing my undergraduate, I got involved in some security research. I started looking at uh, these things called side channels. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but... Explain that to our listeners. Yeah, so side channels are really interesting. They're a very hot research topic right now. Uh, People know that they're a problem, but they don't know how bad this problem is. So essentially what happens is, as a program executes on your computer and is performing some type of secret computation, it leaves a footprint in the hardware. And another process that's running alongside of it, it can look at this footprint and it can infer some information about what that victim process was doing. So the poster child example for this is doing encryption, right? So when I'm doing encryption, I either encrypt with a secret bit of zero or a secret bit of one. And if it's, and there's usually like an if statement in my code. And if it's a zero, I do something. If it's a one, I do something else. And the attacker process just listens for this. And if it can listen closely enough, it can just reconstruct that secret key. So this is essentially what a side channel does. So I've done some work in trying to quantify how bad these channels are, um, how much information you can push through them. It's pretty surprising. You actually get up to like megabytes per second. And these are uh, particularly bad because they're very difficult to detect. It's not like I can watch a program read to a memory or write to a memory location and then another program read from it. This is very difficult because it's, inferred through the hardware, through shared resources. Yeah, and this can become especially interesting now as we have all of these cloud computing platforms rolling out and you don't necessarily know who is running with you on the same piece of hardware or what level of access you get to the hardware or and, and how some of these uh, processing cores are, are pinned to certain virtual machines or shared across virtual machines. So there's all sorts of interesting research going on and these side channel attacks, because it's not just necessarily a process running on your computer and then somebody else running another process on your computer because you don't let multiple people log in to that system, but on a web server, um, even a, a public access web server, or maybe something that's hosting a, a chat application or other things, it's going to allow lots of people to log in and you don't necessarily trust all those other users. So uh, side channels are getting uh, more and more interesting and important as we expand into uh, additional use of multi-tenant cloud services. And uh, that multi-tenant cloud service trend is on the upswing and going to continue on the upswing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if I remember correctly, I think actually Amazon AWS disables hyper-threading because of this issue, because they don't know how bad the side channels can be. Yeah, there's yeah, so lots of uh, good news at the cloud infrastructure provider level on the major cloud providers. They have some really smart research teams themselves as well. They also have teams that are reading all of the academic research papers going on and trying to uh, do the uh, reasonable things to protect you as a customer and, and to protect their infrastructure from uh, things that we don't completely understand yet. These uh, zero-day vulnerabilities. You've heard us talk about those in the program before, if you've uh, listened regularly. Those are 
exploits that are out there that someone has discovered how to use it um, and they're not releasing it to the public and they're not releasing it to the vendor so that a, a fix or a patch can be made. But there's a whole area of research space that's pre-zero day. These are, are areas where security researchers on both the good guy and bad guy side are out there looking for a new class of vulnerability, a new vulnerability in a specific system. Uh, and so the, the high-end security teams are doing things to mitigate their attack service and their potential exposure towards um, new research areas such as side channel attacks. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. So uh, side channels are really how I got interested in security. It's where I started. Uh, after that, I started looking at system security. So how do you build end-to-end -end secure systems and got interested in web security. And um, that's where I met the other co-founder of Symmetry Systems, Mohit Tiwari. He's a professor over at the university. And uh, we started working on how do you build web applications that are secure by design? So that's... Not very easily. Not very easily. It's a very difficult pro um, problem, that's for sure. Yeah. So as you, you go through on the, the software development, we were talking a little bit before uh, we went on air, Software developers, uh, you're given a deadline by a development leader or an executive to implement and launch something. And why is it that security always seems to be the thing that gets left off of that timeline? I do not env envy developers nowadays, that's for sure. Their number one priority is to get functionality out, right? They, uh, that's the number one priority. They have very strict deadlines. They're doing this agile development. They're working with sprints, right? Literally called a sprint. So trying to get functionality out as quickly as possible. And oftentimes security is either an afterthought or these developers, they're just not, they're not experts in security. It's hard enough to keep track of all of the new frameworks that are coming out today, especially client-side development like React.js, um, Node.js, um, Angular. So making sure that you're secure after all that, it's it's a tough task for sure. Yeah. And, and as you, you mentioned JavaScript there, uh, for developers that have not moved into JavaScript yet, the, the first time you do a, an NPM install or something else with Node, you're going to see that you get 347 dependencies link in in order for you to make a uh, default app that says, hello world. And you're like, I wonder what those 347 dependencies are. I wonder what they're doing. And I wonder if they're safe. Yep. You you have to trust all, every single one of them. And it's really amazing. It's for this hello world app, basically, you know, include a million lines of code. Yeah. So as, as you, you, as an executive out there, you're like, why can't my developers write secure code? Well, they're doing their best, but they're building on top of a large foundation. And that large foundation is going to have some variance in the level of rigor on each of those components. And it's very time consuming for a team to go through and analyze each of those dependency libraries to see, are they following coding best practices? Have they gone through and run a linter against it? Have they done even just some of the basic hygiene to ensure that your code is okay? And, and you could say, you know what, well, I'm going to enforce at my level that we do all of these things. We're going to run static code analysis tools. We're going to run a whole security suite against all the dependencies we're linking. And then back to that timeline, you have the choice of go either make your own forks and fix 187 of your 300 and what odd number dependencies or you go submit requests back into those open source projects to where they merge that back into the mainstream and you deploy that mainstream version or you don't 
use that dependency if it fails your test and you build that component from ground up. And if you're going back doing all of these things, all of a sudden it's pretty easy to see other folks are sprinting along and they're using all of those. Um, and you may not be sprinting or you're going to be sprinting much more because you're going to have to go back and, and rewrite a lot of things that are already out there, uh, which will slow down your schedule on functionality. So as we're we're going through here, so you started doing this research and looking at some of these challenges and and you've coined now and, and started talking about privacy as a service. That's right. Yeah. So explain that to the audience. What are you the kind of macro concept that we're thinking about there? Right. So the goal here is we want to create a platform that takes security out of applications. It's no longer the application developer's job to be secure. So instead, we basically swap this out with an API, and the underlying platform is what provides the security. So the users interface with this platform, they define the access control list, they define how security is enforced, and then the pot underlying platform will enforce the security on top of these applications. So the, you're taking the, the web application's access to privilege information away. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we do this through what we call data containers. So the way that we do this is, um, one way to think about it is we take all of the data and we, and we give the applications a very small segment of it so that if the application breaks, well, only a very small segment is lost. So one way to think about this is um, if you work at a hospital, hospitals have patients and they manage patient records, right? So if I have an application that allows doctors and patients to edit their records, right? I don't want this application to have access to every single user's records because if this application is compromised then all of the data can be siphoned off right once the application is compromised the name of the game is well let's be quiet and just slowly leak out this data so really what we try to do is well we run an application instance per medical record right and we authorize all the users who have access to that application instance so now rather than the app instance having access to all of the data it's scoped down to this one medical record we do that for basically every medical record. That's the idea. So that's that's different than the way web applications have access to databases today. Right, right. So right now, web applications have access to the entire database. This is really where the challenge is. It's because this single app, so kind of, you know, dumbing down the scenario a little bit, there's a single application instance that's running that has access to the entire database. And it has legitimate access to the entire database. So it's really difficult just to monitor this and say, oh, you shouldn't have read this user's data right now because, well, the application should be reading all of the user's data, right? So we want to scope this down. The application shouldn't be reading all data all the times. Yeah. And and from a, a database perspective, it doesn't seem like the security world has done a good job on what I would call like a database intrusion detection system or database intrusion monitoring. There's some table scanning and, and read access and, and rate limiting tools that have been built on databases, but not so much with a security angle in mind, much more so a performance um, perspective in mind. So maybe that one web front end can't suck up all the resources in the database and, and shut down all the other users. So it's it seems like many of the controls you're talking about of segmenting, limiting access, or even allowing it, but monitoring and alerting on it um, is coming at it from a security angle and not a let's maintain functionality and performance on the database, which is where it seems like a lot of the existing tools and technologies out there are focused today. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, we do this and try not to uh, limit the tools that developers can use or the performance. 
Uh, developers can use whatever stack that they want. So we work, we run with Linux right now. Um, we actually build on top of Linux containers. Um, that's one of the technologies that we use. And um, yeah, we try to let developers use whatever stack that they want, whatever framework they're comfortable with. Yeah. So as a, uh, say if you were building a, a web application that allowed folks to log in and, and update their own uh, contact information. So if this was a, a web app to a business and this business um, had customers' names and addresses for a reason, then this was going to be a web app that was going to allow folks to log in and update their own name and address. Um, as, as you're going through there, that web application could have a varied number of users logged in. Uh, there could be a reason that a whole bunch of people moved and a lot of users are going to log in and update their information. How do you identify a legitimate increase in user traffic to a hacker now finding authentication vulnerability in that web app, authenticating or faking the authentication for users and going in to pull that information? Right. So uh, that, that's a really good question. So uh, we the platform itself actually takes care of user authentication. So web developers, when they write their applications, no longer have to deal with password management or user account management if they don't want to. We provide an API where they can query what users are on the system and what users are making the request, right? So the only thing that changes to the application is it's got a smaller, the amount of data it sees in the world is now smaller, right? So what happens is when you were to log into this application, well, we would spin up your own personal application instance in a way. And your application instance will be um, given access to only your data, right? And from an attacker's point of view, this is a really bad scenario because if I log into this app instance and I break the app instance, well, the app instance only has access to my data anyways. So all of the data I can siphon is only my data. So yeah, if you were able to find a remote exploit that gave you shell access to the system, this used to be the, the hacker's golden dreams. Uh, and these were the, the zero days that the hackers would find one of these and they would go take it and sell it in a marketplace because that would allow other bad people to get into all of the data in any system running that same application framework. Yeah, that's exactly right. We want it to be that we want it to be secure by design. So even if the application breaks, it doesn't matter. So your data confidentiality is not compromised. So in the event that you, you start seeing these app instances crashing or behaving abnormally, um, so you go through that would alert and then the web application owner could make a decision to um, shut the whole thing down until they figure out why it's crashing or does it do some proactive um, understanding of the attack vector as well. The data containers provide a nice abstraction because it really zeroes in on what is the user trying to do. So if you were to see something like you mentioned, these application instances crashing all of a sudden, well, there's a flag that something wrong is going on. So if you're running in, you know, enforcement versus permissive mode, well, if it's permissive mode, it could just, um, you know, send a notification to the administrator and say, hey, something weird's going on, you need to check this out. It's in enforcement mode, we just stop all access to the application. But also it, it, it shows signals such as a user that's going across all of data, all of the data in an unusual pattern, right? If we see, for example, if we're looking at, if we're talking about the um, doctor scenario, a doctor were to log into the application and now start looking at all patients' records going through all of these data containers, well, that's a red flag, 
right? So now if we see unusual activity from users as well, we can flag this. So it boosts the anomaly detection, gives another signal to do anomaly detection with. And and so as we, we look at this, so this will help us for um, newly designed or newly developed applications, or you, you could go roll this out as a uh, data migration, move things out of a database, add this layer in the middle to manage the security of that data access. Um, so a good model going forward, this is where we, we do research um, in here to build better models and to improve things uh, as as we go. What does this look like for a rollout if I have an existing application and I, I want to try to move to this model? Yeah, so existing applications can be imported directly without any changes, but you get some redundant functionality that, um, for example, the application no longer needs to do user authentication. The platform takes care of that. So if I'm a user of the platform, I now have to log in twice. So application developers can actually just remove that from the application. They don't have to do any extra work there. Um, we provide a, uh, a storage, a REST API storage for long-term storage to developers. This is similar to something like um, S Amazon S3 storage. Um, and from the database point of view, nothing changes with the database. We will provide, the platform itself provides credentials to the application instance. It uses them and it uses the database as it would before. So it's mainly pulling out these users, this uh, no longer having to manage users, instead just using this API to query about what users are on the system. So if, if all of my user authentication and uh, for my application is tied into uh, either a, a third-party authentication platform or a, on the if it's an external web app, maybe I'm, I'm authing with uh, Google or Microsoft identities or credentials. Uh, how does how does this work in that world if maybe I wasn't managing my user credentials to begin with? Right. As long as these each credential maps to a unique user, the underlying platform will take care of it. The applications then can just query, use our API to find out, okay, what user is making the request. But it's essentially the underlying platform can tie into these different access control platforms that may you be using. Whatever user management you're using, we just tie into that, and we can get the list of users from there. And and so that'll, that'll handle the authentication piece. And then you've got the, the authorization piece and permissions. So maybe if it's a, a medical records application, um, maybe a doctor might only have read-only access in there because the doctor's responsible for updating the nurse, and the nurse actually has to input the records into the system, and that way they kind of handle the controls to make sure that two people are aware of medical recommendations to a patient because the nurse can't make medical recommendations directly. Uh, so in, in this type of world where you've got the, the authentication credentials, then you've got authorization credentials about which pieces uh, of permissions does a specific user have um, you've got uh, an overlay abstract I guess as well to import the the authorization piece yeah so this is a really good question so um, there's data confidentiality right which is we don't want anyone who's not supposed to see the data to see it right and that's what we completely take care of right now then there is data integrity which is ensuring that the data is not rewritten or overwritten right so um, Data integrity is something that we're actually working on implementing right now. So it's still up to the applications to ensure that if I'm a doctor on the system, that I have read-write access and patients of the system can only read the data, right? But we, but the platform protects against data confidentiality. So we guarantee that only the doctor and patient that this uh, medical record pertains to can see this data. That's it. So, yeah, preventing the, the access to it right now, just not necessarily the update of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And 
And uh, and so this is uh, good progress, I think, as we go through. And maybe the second half of the program, we'll uh, dive in and talk some more hypothetical scenarios and risk models and threat models uh, about uh, all of this interaction between data, data interchange, uh, and, and where we're headed. Uh, if you've uh, just uh, turned on the radio right now, uh, you're listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. Uh, we're talking about privacy and uh, data management and uh, secure access to that information in a modern web application. I'm joined this week uh, by Kason Hunger, who's a researcher at the University of Texas working on some new models for privacy as a service. Uh, you will be able to listen to uh, this full episode, and uh, as well as uh, all of our, our past episodes and broadcasts uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, this program will go uh, on air on January the 2nd, uh, just after uh, New Year's Day, um, up there on the internet. So if uh, you did miss this or you're not going to be able to stay tuned for the second half of the program, you can catch it in its entirety um, online on our website. Also, if you uh, prefer podcasts, it's available uh, on your iPhone. Uh, or Android device. Uh, I prefer Pocket Casts. Um, they don't sponsor the program or anything else. I just think it's a nice app. But any Android podcasting app that you choose to use, it'll be available through there as well as uh, iTunes for the uh, Apple users. You get one choice in the Apple world. So uh, it'll be available via the iTunes podcasting service. Um, so again, thanks for joining us and uh, taking a little segue there here as we uh, recap things for folks. Um, so as you're working on this from a PhD level research, that innately means that at least specifically what you're working on, nobody else is doing. Because if you were doing it, you wouldn't be getting a PhD when you're getting done. Yes. That's yeah. A very good point. Yeah. yeah. So uh, as, as you're working through this right now, where when are you uh, getting ready to uh, go forward with the dis dissertation to finish that up? Right. Uh, so it depends a little bit on the startup, but in uh, hopefully if I propose in about a year, and then defend in about two years. So have it all wrapped up in about two more years. Two more years. Yep. Yeah. So for those of you uh, in the undergrad world thinking about going through to get that PhD and, and you get a someone trying to recruit you into a program that says it's only three more years, it's not really only three more years, is it? No, never, never is. No, yeah. no, not especially if you're if you're good at what you're doing, because then you'll you'll end up going off on some rabbit holes that won't exactly get you through in a straight line to that research PhD. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you better like doing research if you're going after the PhD. Yeah. So when you say like doing research, what what does that constitute? Is that downloading source code frameworks and reading about Angular, or, or what is research? Research, in my opinion, is an extremely open-ended question. It's an extremely open-ended problem. You uh, so the whole goal of research is you're doing something that no one's really done before, right? So there really are no resources that you can go to and find a solution to this problem you're working on. And I think that you really just have to be able to um, accept defeat and continue to move forward. Yeah, so this isn't downloading Angular and going to Stack Overflow to learn how to build your first app. No, it's uh, reading a lot of research papers. Yeah. So uh, you, I hope you like reading. And um, yeah, just really, uh, you know, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of thinking, and uh, a lot of trying things that haven't been tried before and you will fail pretty often, but that's okay. That's part of the process. Yeah. And, and when someone thinks that, well, everyone, somebody's already written about and thought about everything in computer science, as you're out there, you've gone down this one specific track. Uh, how many other folks are you working with um, in just the UT computer science department right now that are working on PhDs? 
in uh there's about uh 10 other uh phd students in my lab right now um in the entire university i'm actually not sure that's a good question uh, i would say in the computer uh, engineering side it's uh, probably about 100 students about 100 phd students yeah so we've certainly not exhausted every unique and new problem idea at this point in time no, which, which also means technological rate of change not slowing down anytime soon. Because if we're coming up with all of these new things, we're going to have new, better ideas that we all need to go implement all the way back into uh, existing systems. That's right. And some of it is even, you know, we, we've had these ideas in the past, but haven't had the technology to actually go and build it. Now that technology catches up. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for a news traffic and weather update here at the bottom of the hour. And then we will be back to uh, talk some more uh, open-ended scenarios about uh, privacy, security, and uh, your online information here moving into 2018 and the uh, next decade where everything is going to be digital and online probably by 2030. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week by Kaysen Hunger, a researcher up at the University of Texas and the uh, co-founder of a startup called Symmetry. So what, what made you guys pick that name, Kaysen? So um, Symmetry came about because we wanted more symmetry between developers and security, actually. We found that there's a lot of pushback from developers. It's kind of like developers write code their code a certain way and they like it this way and then the security team comes in and just messes everything up so we were trying to create more balance there um kind of by creating security by default yeah so as we were um talked in the the first half of the program a little bit about side channel attacks uh, some of the research that you're working on uh if you uh happen to just tune in now here after that news traffic and weather update and you missed this uh, on january 2nd uh, this episode will go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com uh, as well as on our youtube channel or uh, any of your favorite podcasting services out there so you could catch the uh, first half of that and uh, stay uh, on the air here and listen with us if you are listening to uh, one of those rebroadcasts or uh, replays of the program. Thank you uh, for joining in. Uh, please subscribe. You can uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook page as well. Um, and if you have suggestions or ideas uh, for future topics or future guests, or if you would like to be one of those guests, uh, there's a forum on our website. Again, that's www.cybertalkradio.com. So during that bottom of the hour break, it, it, we were talking and, and I learned it turns out your research is actually all the way down in the uh, computer engineering school computer engineering level um, even though you're uh, working your way up through the uh, application stack here to uh, higher level security at, at the application and, and we were talking as the, with those side channel attacks uh, down uh, to uh, how that can get into the the hardware components and how um, is, there's 
complexity all the way through even below device drivers to hardware chip firmware. And with kind of this lack of understanding, I think that many programmers have as they start up in an application framework, um, leaves them in a, a vulnerable state to creating security problems that they can't even really necessarily understand or be aware of is uh, one of the examples I, I give to folks often is if I can put a microphone in a room with you and record you typing on your keyboard, I can figure out what your passwords are. I can figure out what you're typing generally with a pretty high accuracy into your computer, especially if you uh, have one of those nice mechanical clicky keyboards for me. So uh, as, as you have, have done this uh, research down at that hardware level, um, as you, you, you go through there, one of the ones we were talking about is uh, memory access and being able to see patterns, kind of like those keyboards. Can you share a little bit for our listeners about some of that past research and help them kind of just open their, their mind to thinking about uh, some of the different things that both attackers and defenders are trying to do at uh, these lower levels? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's actually amazing to me how many of these side channels exist and maybe how many we don't know still exist. So some of my research started with trying to identify what are all of these possible side channels. So we looked at things like shared memory, so access to the memory bus. So just timing on the memory bus itself, uh, the cache, that's the poster child for side channels. So when you say the cache, do you mean like the, the processor cache, the L1, the L2, the L3? Yeah, we, uh, all the way up, L1, L2, L3, uh, any shared cache between two processes, um, instruction or data, they can both be uh, used as a, uh, as a side channel vector. Uh, there's load and store uh, memory instruction queues. Uh, you can actually use AES hardware units. Uh, you can create side channels there. Uh, as well as uh, even things like floating point operations that can uh, create side channels. Uh, there's a uh, sort of famous attack in the browser that uses floating point operations to reconstruct the page and the information that the user is seeing. So in a way, they can reconstruct your username and password. Um, code within the browser can actually do this by using floating point operations. It's really interesting. So. Uh, yeah, these side channels exist everywhere. So the foolproof method to defend against this is to completely partition hardware. But that's a huge waste of resources. Um, they have some work that does this, but uh, you know, you're basically giving up half of your resources in order to do this. Um, a lot of other work is focused on adding noise to each of these channels. So in particular, if we talk about the memory bus access. If I'm an attacker that can see not the data that's going out, but the addresses that are being accessed on memory, well, I can reconstruct what parts of the code you're going to, and I can reconstruct what you're doing. So um, this can even be seen in uh, database queries. I can figure out what database queries you're issuing and when you're issuing them, right? So, um, so, so explain a little bit more context about how that works. So when you say, if I'm going to a specific memory address in my code, uh, how does that tie back to you knowing what I'm doing? Yeah, so that ties back because the information that you're accessing is at that particular memory location, right? So if I can see that you're going to this memory location, I know I can gain some insight into what information is that you're accessing. So I guess if we, we use one example, so you can see if a, a database application this thread on the computer has the name of database.exe and this thread has reserved memory pages one through 10. If some other application is sending a request over that creates either a 
an access to one of those memory pages, you know that 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 process is communicating with the database process somehow. Yeah, that's actually that's absolutely right. So um, yeah, that, that's a great example. So um, in the database, when it brings all this information into the into memory, it doesn't duplicate it, right? So I may have my user information in page zero, and my password information, something like that, in page 10. And if I can see that you're accessing page 10, I know the query that you issued. I know that you're looking at passwords. Yeah. And then from a shared operating system library perspective, so uh, these days most applications use what's called a shared or dynamic linking. They don't use static linking where you include all of your sub-level components into your own application binary because it's wasteful. Um, and you'd have to give your application a lot of permissions that operating systems don't want to give these days. So if you're going to do something like open a file in the file system, you're going to do that through a shared library. Um, every process in the system is going to access that shared library at the same memory address. So I can see if I run an F open and then I can see something else and I can get back what memory address that F open came back at and how that worked and where I accessed it, then I can see any other process that accesses that memory address is opening up a file right now. Yeah, and uh, an example that I brought up a little bit earlier was um, doing encryption. So if you have this shared library, two processes, they both load in the same code that they will execute in order to do encryption. So the attacker can find out where in memory, if my secret bit is zero code is, versus yeah. my, if my secret bit is one code. And they can monitor when that code is accessed. and through that, they can reconstruct the secret key. Yeah, which is not good. No, no, it's not. No, because if you have the secret key, that's kind of like having the secret password to get inside the secret club, and then nothing's secret once you're inside the secret club. That's right, that's right. And it's a huge pain in order to uh, reissue all of your keys. So Yeah, and and it's, it's, a, it's an even bigger pain when you don't know that somebody has your secret keys and you think you're sending back and forth encrypted secure communication for a long time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, is as you, you look at um, all of these attacks out there. And so these side channel attacks um, are people finding flaws in the implementation of the mathematical algorithms. Um, mostly when we're expiring security these days on the, on the encryption side of things, like we don't use RC4 anymore. If you are using RC4 out there, please stop. Even if you're using MD5 in almost every use case, please stop. There's a handful of use cases where MD5 might still be okay. Um, even and but these algorithms we're no longer using because now they're called cryptographically weak. We've found some flaws that will allow it, or computers have gotten so much faster with new types of GPUs and other type of hardware processing chips that we can now brute force those much more quickly than when they were originally written. Um, none of those changes in these algorithms are based off of weaknesses or flaws in the implementation. These are not side channel attacks and most of the attacks as you were talking about AES-256 there. Algorithmically, we're not cracking that anytime soon um, as far as any one of us publicly know. From flaws and implementations, there's all sorts of encryption systems out there using AES-256 where the secret key is discoverable and if the secret key is discoverable, it doesn't matter how magical your math is on the inside. Uh, I mean, this is one of these really important areas of research and then, I mean, it I don't know. This is where, as I get really excited about all this stuff, and then as in some of the show prep, as we were talking back and forth, like we mentioned stuff like Equifax, where I think all the security folks just want to we want to go pound our head in the table because like database encryption not turned on there. Um, I mean, it's and so in one of these is you you go from academic research out to the real world. Um, are you ready to to uh, walk into this this room where you 
default database credentials and no encryption turned on? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, developers have a uh, lot to manage. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty large checklist. I mean, that should be at the top of the list, but unfortunately it falls through the cracks from time to time. Yeah. And, and for those that are new, well, I mean, every adult in America, you probably got a notification or you should have, um, that some of your information was exposed during this Equifax incident. Um, that they had a database with some information about all of us, not our complete credit report, thankfully, uh, but some information about all of us, um, that are adults here in the U S unencrypted in the database, no individual access controls to these records. So the hackers were able to get in and pull all of the records all at once. Um, if you're wondering what I mean by individual access control, please listen to the uh, rebroadcast of this. If you, since you probably didn't join us during the first half of the program, but there's some interesting things you can do there to prevent somebody downloading 120 million records from the database. Uh, and there's the database had default username and password, which is a process problem. So production databases should have one person set it up, someone else quality check it. And both of those people should sign off on a reasonable security checklist. And one of the things on that checklist should be the username and password is not the default username and password. The username and password is something unique to the application. It's stored in a safe way. The credentials for that database aren't even checked in to your source code repository. There's a whole bunch of things you should be checking through to make sure that those username and password credentials to the database are handled safely and as securely as you can and rolling them out with a web application. Yeah, there were a lot of problems <laughs> with the uh, Equifax breach, that's for sure. I think it was um, the vulnerability in Apache Struts had been around for three months. Yeah. Uh, and what hadn't, it took three months for it to be patched. Um, but the bug was in the code for something like nine years. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, points of failure. And unfortunately, I think they all failed. Yeah. And, and this is why you, you also can't just look at one security layer for this uh, utopia. That immediately, if I do this one thing, it's going to fix everything. Um, you've got to set up, as we call it, defense in depth or layered security model or um, all these things, but you, you want to limit the impact of a security incident. Uh, it's going to be hard to eliminate all security incidents. Like There's going to be flaws and in things. Individual users will get their own account hacked and compromised, and then the hacker is going to log into all the, their own services and learn more information about that person. As the application owner and application provider, that wasn't even anything securely you did wrong. You have to allow your own users to log in and get access to their own information. Um, and you're not going all the way upstream to be able to determine that it wasn't really them logging in from their machine. It was somebody with a remote access backdoor logging in from their machine. And you could go do things where you install an agent on your customer's computer and double check for that sort of stuff before they log in. But most folks won't use your application. This is that trade off between security and functionality and ease of use. It doesn't matter how uh, secure you make it. If nobody uses it, it doesn't matter. So. Well, it's infinitely secure then. Yeah. Infinite. No confidential right. information is in an app that does not get used. Uh, that's right. And it's really tough to stop uh, people from writing their passwords down on sticky notes on their monitor, right? So um, problems like the in insider threat, that's uh, very difficult to stop. Uh, you can set up everything securely, and that's still going to get by. Um, but yeah, like you said, the defense in depth is really important. It's important to layer things like anomaly detection on top of um, you know, a secure platform using anomaly detection. And then you can do things like static and dynamic code analysis. So each of them have their strengths strength and weaknesses, but uh, you, know, you kind of use them together to provide the best defense that you can. Yeah, so static code analysis, explain that for folks that have not 
heard about that before. Definitely. So static code analysis is analyzing the source code for vulnerabilities um, without actually having to run it. And um, this it can be a very difficult problem, um, especially for lower level languages like C. You kind of have path explosion problems where there are just so many different paths your code can take that it takes it would take too much time to actually analyze it. But it's really good for looking at things like outdated libraries and um, just really obvious um, vulnerabilities. Um, they also have dynamic analysis where you uh, actually run the code and you run it down unusual paths and try to look for bugs. Um, this is great as well, but the problem is it's not completely sound. You can't get, it may not be possible to get 100% code coverage. Um, so there's a lot of work on trying to drive your program's execution to really rare paths and trying to find these, identify these paths and then look for bugs there. Because typically the bugs are in places that haven't been tested before, right? It's code that's rarely executed. So yeah. um, that's uh, static and dynamic analysis. Yeah. And everyone's code has 100% test coverage though, right? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. No one's code has 100% test coverage. If your development team says they have 100% test coverage, they have written really really bad tests. Or, I don't know another way to say it. Or they're uh, not writing very difficult code. Yeah, <laughs> very much good. Yeah. It's, it's some of the code, it's very difficult to write unit tests for. It's even really difficult to write functional or system tests for it. Um, and some code, it's almost impossible to write a unit test for. And there's lots of um, rabbit holes to go down and explain why that is. But you should have some reasonable test coverage. And this is why also there's no one thing you can mandate as an executive or a business owner saying that we're going to have 100% test coverage across these things. So we're going to catch all the security problems um, by doing that. And that's not the case because it's um, no one way to fix all these different uh, aspects of issues. So as, as you had mentioned, um, lower level languages uh, like C, um, it, today, most of the folks are, are coding stuff up um, in languages like Node that may run in a web browser. Um, so as we discussed, all these hardware side channels or memory address registers, Node code doesn't see that sort of thing, not directly anyways. Um, are side channels still an issue up at, at the browser? Or if I'm coding browser apps, can I just, and, and things that run in the browser's container, can I stop worrying about that? No, so uh, yeah, it's really interesting. These side channels arise in very non-obvious ways, I think. Um, so there is um, some recent work done that shows that uh, browser code can actually exploit these side channels through uh, floating point operations. And by doing so, they can actually reconstruct the page the um, the browser page that's being displayed. So if I can have this some third-party library that I pull in to my JavaScript code, it can go back through and reconstruct my page, and it can look at what you know credentials I've typed in, so username and password, and it can reconstruct my entire page. So it's um, even though JavaScript isn't dealing with things like pointers, uh, these problems still exist. Yeah, and if if you're going out there on a little bit of a, a segue here from the side channel attack if you're on a web page on your phone and all of a sudden your phone starts to get really warm and you're wondering why it's getting so warm there's a javascript library out there called js minor um, and that javascript library has probably been loaded on that page uh, through a malicious ad network or because that page has been hacked or that page is just written by somebody that's evil and they're using the cpu and all the other resources on your phone maybe they can get access to your gpu depending on what privileges you've given your browser um, and they're using that to mine bitcoin so they've uh, turned you into a bitcoin miner for them they've turned your phone into a shovel right right yeah um so and 
by the way, that JS Miner is doing lots of floating points. So if there's some other theoretical security things they could do by executing a lot of floating point uh, on your phone, they may be doing more than mining Bitcoin. They may be mining all your personal information at the same time. Yep, that's right. Yep. And you know, the amount of third party code is just growing yes. larger and larger. I mean, don't reinvent the wheel. So it's good in that sense, but uh, bad in the sense that you're trusting all of the third party libraries that you use. Yeah. So for, for a, uh, old guy like me who's got gray hair in my beard is we, we were talking about um, some of these different shared access problems down at the uh, hardware level and where if you've got a, a single core processor um, the cache on there not so dynamically shared the memory registers not so dynamically shared there's only one core that's got to go through all the apps have to all the threads in the machine have to stand in line um, to get access to that one core when you, you get into a more modern process architecture now, they talk all these uh, multi-thread, hyper-threading, where you may have multiple threads even sharing a single core, um, and you get down to memory registers that, uh, from a, a walk-in folks through that are older like me that maybe not have done as much studying at the hardware level of, of the pathing on newer chips, does, does each thread or each core have its own set of registers or is there still some shared access up there as you get down into the, the core of the CPU? So um, first, I just, uh, I'll make a little point that even if you have a single threaded processor and you have a victim and a attacker running and they are time multiplexed, these channels still exist because the victim can still leave a footprint in the, uh, in the system. So if you think, okay, I just won't run these two processes at the same time, problem solved, well... Not exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, the problem is that there are not necessarily registers, but there are a lot of shared resources between two simultaneously executing threads, especially in these new hyper-threaded cores. So um, they share things like load store queues, um, the floating point um, operation units, uh, the cache all the way through, L1, L2, and L3 caches, uh, instruction caches as well, and uh, memory buses. And everything is is shared, and that's the underlying problem. And so there's some been work. There has been some work done on um, completely time multiplexing, or uh, basically partitioning all of your resources in half, limiting the amount of time that each process has to run. But uh, you definitely take a performance hit there. So it's really a trade-off um, on how secure do you want to be versus what's the performance hit you want to take. Yeah. And then as, as we go off the CPU and that CPU memory bus off to the, the GPU inside the system, some of these GPUs have hundreds of cores in them. They have their own memory. They're really their own computer at this point that happens to run on a, a card inside the system. Um, do things get any safer or different there if I'm doing computing on the GPU versus the CPU? Uh, it's pretty much the same. It all depends on you know what abilities the attacker has. But if I um, have the abilities to probe mem the memory bus, um, as long as I can see what's going in and out of the GPU, I s am still learning some information. Um, from a process that's running on the system, it's a little bit more challenging, but uh, there are still shared resources there that you can take advantage of. Yeah. And, and this is a, an interesting one as you get out into the cloud computing world um, where there's different types of virtual machines offered to you on different types of clouds. Some of them where they pin a CPU core to your virtual instance. Some of them where you have shared cores that are spanned across multiple machines and you can burst and access different resources. Um, same thing with uh, memory uh, where you may have a fixed amount of memory on there. Um, some of them may 
not even actually give you all that memory. If you go up to your max memory, you may swap out to disk into some shared memory area and you uh, start to access different hardware resources from inside your machine and those other ones that are running on there also access different things. Are there any um, tips as you think about um, security from your perspective if you're um, off running your application in a cloud or in a container or on this fancy new Intel hardware containers or other areas uh, that folks should try to do to protect themselves from these side channels? Uh, right now, if you really want to protect yourself from side channels, you unfortunately need a dedicated instance. Just don't run with anyone else, and uh, you're guaranteed to be secure. Part of the problem with these side channels is we don't know how bad it is yet. It's very difficult to quantify. If I give you a um, program and say, uh, it's very difficult to say, this even has a side channel. And if it does have a side channel, what is it? And uh, you know how many bits per second are being leaked, right? So um, I would say that it, if you have sensitive code or you are dealing with sensitive data and you don't want it to leak, it's just best to use a dedicated instance. Thank you very much for uh, coming down in uh, San Antonio and joining us this week. And uh, uh, glad to hear that uh, you guys are part of BuildSec Foundry, our security incubator here in uh, San Antonio. Uh, if you have a, a security startup out there working on products, uh, look up BuildSec Foundry. Uh, they are here to help early stage security product companies uh, figure out all the things you need to do to get to market and make the uh, world a safer place. Yep, thanks for having me, Brett. I really appreciate it.